ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek, 5 foot 11, 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous, 5 foot 11, 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication. Turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got. You can get it ground, you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own. They've got all of the options. Uh, and then you use the code PEAKSPEAK in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think they express post everything, so hopefully quickly. Perfect. Amazing. And well, that's it. Without further ado, here's, here's the episode. Yeah. Enjoy. Presented by Thomas Lilly and John Sheridan, Baby Cry in the Background, not included. We're back for another episode of Peak Speak today, joined by a very special guest, Dr. Pat Davidson. Welcome, man. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I always love these kinds of opportunities. And, you know, I never know who, the, who I'm going to talk to exactly. But I always like seeing it when, for sure, the dudes have competed in lifting sports. <laughs> you can just yeah. see it. You're like, that's okay, we're going to get along just fine. Yeah, that's pretty much all we've done, though. So, uh, you know, it's just meatheads talking to meatheads, really, in the scheme of things. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. Like, I, I feel like we already know you just because yeah. we've both spent the last fucking three days listening to 12 hours if you talk in the uh, rethinking the big patterns two seminar oh um, you guys listen through that yeah yeah man i i sat through it live uh so i like because i i was determined i've spent the money on it i'm like i'm getting up and i'm watching this live because it'll be just better live so mm -hmm. i got to the gym at like uh it was 12 30 a.m on sunday morning and i think i left day one at like 10 30 a.m went home and slept for a bit you know did some things then came back did the same thing on sunday night i had to leave monday morning before you finished because i nearly fell asleep at my desk yeah uh, you messaged me about i got so many damn messages about various things you know what i mean yeah well i remember that one because i was thinking to myself man this dude's crazy like he's staying <laughs> up all night man just watch it on on replay but uh, I thought about that, but I actually, I had some really good conversations in the, um, 
in the chat for the Zoom yep. thing, which was cool. Like, cause I, I think I've been exposed to your sort of concepts and stuff for a while. Uh, I've seen some of the stuff from your original seminar as well. And uh, I think it actually really helped me in answering other people's questions to actually clarify, like having heard you talk about it and then having my own sort of interpretation of it and then having you clarify it again actually really helped me solidify a lot of things. So it was a hundred percent worth it from my point of view. I heard that the zoom chat was worth the whole thing all yeah. by itself, that there were people jumping in there and like, you know, helping people out and straightening people out with, with misinterpretations or, or things like that. I didn't see any of that. You know what yeah, I mean? Obviously. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's a really cool component. It's, it's like, I feel like that's sort of how modern information is coming across anyways. Like, you know, I throw on, we, I don't know what you guys have. We have ESPN with sports center over here. And, you know, you're getting the, the feed of the guys talking about, you know, the sports highlights and all that stuff. But you get the stuff running at the bottom of the screen, giving you the updates. And it's like, that's just kind of the, the, the normal thing anyways, when you're getting information provided to you through a digital source. So the fact that that, that happened with this seminar is a, I didn't even think that that was going to be a thing. Yeah. But it added to it, I think. And, and that's, that's what I got as feedback from, from Diego, who was, uh, in charge of all the audio and visual components. Yeah. yeah. So, and look, man, I, I think it's the sort of thing that can't happen in an in-person seminar. Cause if we were having those conversations while you were talking, you'd be like, Hey, dickheads, shut up. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was really beneficial for me. I'm like, I'm really happy and glad that I put up with it. It took me a few days to recover for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. but it was definitely worth the investment. It was, yeah, I'm it was, glad because, you know, I, I, uh, it's been tough with, obviously everybody's had it tough with COVID, but I, I really enjoy being able to go places and teach these seminars and, and get to meet people from various parts of the world. And, um, you know, it, like I had to completely rethink like just how to offer this stuff. And, and I'm not a tech savvy person and, and trying to do this was like, and never, you know, it never would have even occurred to me to try to do something like this without it being forced upon me with, with the current like global pandemic. But I would really at some point love to, um, to get to Australia to do some of these uh, because the in-person is so much better too, you know. Yeah, but, for sure. Uh, yeah. You're a... You've had a big influence here, whether or not you realize it, uh, you know, and it's re- it was really good to watch the uh, watch the rethinking the big patterns too, uh, to kind of uh, you know see the firsthand source material uh, because certain people have you know maybe heard it from third, fourth, fifth hand sources and are starting to misinterpret or, or deliver it in a way that maybe doesn't make sense to the source. So anyone listening to this, I really encourage you to, to you get your hands on that source material and we'll get you to plug it at the end. And you've obviously got the book coming out eventually as well. And we'll get you to plug that too. Um, uh, yeah, that should be like any day. Like, I mean, it's literally like uh, the person finishing up the graphics and doing that, like probably as we're talking and, uh, by the end of the week, she should be done with that. And then it's it's going to be an ebook. So once it's done, you know, the Renaissance periodization people will put it on their site and it'll be good to go. But that yes. could, you know, as, as soon as Friday, as late as probably Monday is probably yeah, when that'll fuck happen. Yeah. 
Which will time out perfectly because we release our episodes on Monday here. Uh, And so this one's going out next Monday. So it'll almost be like the perfect advertisement for you ever. And uh, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So maybe I planned it. Hmm. So one one thing that you you made a you made a point of in in day one of your uh, in day one of your seminar was the idea that you know the people like yourself or like the Bill Hartmans of the world that are that are at the top and that are preaching this stuff and delivering this stuff haven't just appeared there you know you've you've had this long long background of of arriving there so I, I wanted to start the conversation by uh, you telling the people a little bit more uh, about who you are and maybe talking through your sporting background and also your educational and professional background. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And and you know it's funny like we we just had Thanksgiving here in the U.S., which is one of our you know it's kind of just a, a very specific U.S. holiday. But it's one where, um, you know, it's, a, it's one of the big, the big ones, like, like Christmas. So, you know, I, it, was, it was interesting going home. I, I don't go home very often. Like, I live in New York City now, and uh, where I grew up was very rural compared to that. It was like a kind of a, a small beach town. And, um, you know, in the summertime, it has a lot of tourists come there, and it's like kind of a, you know, it's bright and vibrant and full of life. And then in the wintertime, it's like just – dead ghost town and so it's a bit of like a schizophrenic type of a environment to, to grow up in and um you know it's funny it's one it's like a lot of fishermen grow up there and uh blue collar people like more more pickup trucks that are rusted out than um you know sports cars for sure and you know it's it's just a, a place that's kind of like i said sort of a blue collar mentality and um and just like, you know, there's just different regions of the states that have their own, their own personality to them. And it's, it's New England and, and New England, I think is, it's, you know, it's colder. It's, you gotta, you gotta be a little bit more, I, I don't know what the exact, the way to describe it is, but, but it's, I would just say it's like a, a grittier place than a lot of other parts of the states. And, um, you know, I think that I, I come from, from a, a family that, that's a pretty gritty family with a long history. Like, you know, uh, most of my, my great relatives that I can think of would have come over from Ireland as either indentured servants or like potato famine time. And, uh, you know, they just scrapped and tried to put something together over here. And, you know, I was like, my early period in life was, was difficult because you know, my biological mother was, was not a fit parent. My father was never really in my life. You know, a lot of substance abuse. My father, you know, as far as I know, was just like in and out of jail for most of his life. So, you know, I was raised primarily by my grandparents uh, early on. And, and it's funny, like, you know, so the generation that raised me would have been two people born in 1914 and 1950 and had lived through the Great Depression in the United States and, uh, you know, had brothers and sisters fighting in, in World War II and or not sisters, but brothers and, you know, just going through um, a harder period, I think. So, so my upbringing was one of just being raised by old school people with very old school values and, um, and, so it, 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 things, it just, it wasn't like easy, but I think that, that a lot of the mentality components that I got from, from important people in my life at an early time sort of stuck with me on that front. But, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm somebody, I'm, I'm totally open about my life history. I'm somebody that struggled with substance abuse. I'm somebody that has struggled with, uh, you know, like some psychological things with depression and things in, in that area. Uh, so I've had periods where I've been very adrift and I've had other periods where I've been able to work almost like in a manic uh, state and really be able to drive things forward at a high rate. Um, and I think that I'm somebody that kind of has medicated through, through training in a lot of ways. So, you know, I, I always try to talk about these things because I think that, that there are things that people avoid talking about out of fear of like how they'll be judged by others or something along those lines. But I, I, I don't know, like I, I'm sure that there's people that will listen to this that have had unusual upbringings or have struggled with, with difficult things, either behaviorally or psychologically or things, other things. There's a lot of people I know that have had substance abuse problems and it's like, they, they might think that there's a, you know, no hope for them or something along those lines. But I, I, I would like to, I always try to say like, you know, I know other people that have been inspirations for me that have struggled in their life and their proof of being able to put their life together helped me be able to do that. And I hope that by me talking about this and the fact that I've managed to do things with my life that I never thought would be possible could serve the same for somebody else. So, you know, from a sports perspective, you know, I played fairly traditional sports growing up here. I, I primarily played baseball and American football and I played baseball in college. And when I was done with, uh, with college baseball, I got into mixed martial arts and uh, jujitsu and kickboxing. And, you know, I, I, I finished college baseball early. Like I was a total mess my first year of college and I just like was done before the school year was even over. So, you know, when that happened, like I, I kind of got into mixed martial arts uh, at that point. So I would have been like 19 years old. And, and that was a really critical sport for me to get into. Um, it gave me somebody that was a, a major mentor for me in life, my, my coach in that sport. Uh, and, and it just gave me kind of a trajectory. Like it was a sport that allowed me to appreciate the value of fitness and nutrition for, for, you know, baseball is not a sport where, where diet and exercise matter that much. Either you, you got it or you don't, either you can throw, run and hit, or you can't, and you can't diet your way into being able to throw 90 miles an hour. It just isn't a thing. But with, with fighting, it's like, Hey, you know, if, if I manage to really physically push myself harder than other people, like I'll, I'll wear them down. Or if I can diet and suffer, I'll get into a weight class where I can just physically dominate people. So the power of manipulating the body through those things kind of unfolded to me. Um, you know, eventually, uh, I, with all the training and all the exercise and all that sort of stuff, like my career and, and pathway started to move towards uh, exercise science and getting an education in that area. And because my, uh, my first college degree was completely unrelated, it was in history, and I, I sort of specialized in, um, you know, kind of a combo of, of like Chinese philosophy and modern European history, which is divergent, but I really enjoyed both of them. And, um, but I, I, I changed trajectories, and I got a master's degree in strength and conditioning. And that was during that period of time, 
was when, you know, I, I knew I was a decent student before that, but I wasn't as passionate or I didn't feel as much of a connection or whatever it was, but I, I started to put it together in terms of, of how to really have a process for learning material and excelling in academics during that time. And, and I could tell that I had a better skill set in that than, than other people that, that were in the same program. So I just pushed on I I ended up getting a PhD and that led me to working as a professor for uh, six years. And with that, like it was both really great experiences and, and, and then kind of at the tail end, very negative experiences where I felt very connected to the job, uh, working with students and like really loving um, the process of researching and learning material. But I was a very disconnected person from the standpoint of, of providing, like doing the service oriented stuff, like working in a department and wanting to be on committees and, and just like socializing with other faculty members and things like that, where I, it was like, this guy doesn't fit in with the rest of us. And uh, it, it, it created a lot of conflict and problems. And a lot of them were, were my fault, but it led to to me really being kind of pushed away from academics and, and transitioning into, you know, working in the private sector uh, in New York City. Um, you know, along the path of, of working as a professor, I had a number of students that, that competed in strongman. You know, I was at Springfield College in Massachusetts and we had a number of, of, of young men that were competing in that and training in it. And they were like, you know, they had me in, in class as their professor and, you know, they could see I'd be training after class, going out in the field and running sprints and lifting in the weight room and all that, that kind of stuff. And they were like, man, I think you'd really like this strongman stuff. You should, you should come over to the gym and try it. And I was kind of like, oh, if I do this, I know I'm going to probably be pretty good at it and probably get obsessed with it and it's probably going to take over my life so i don't know if i really want to try it but i did and of course that's exactly what happened <laughs> and uh you know i competed for uh three years and like you know i had enough of a background with, with all the strength and power sports and stuff like that to to already be uh very good as soon as i started it and you know i managed to uh finish top 10 in the u.s in the 175 pound weight class twice and then compete for two world championships of the Arnold uh, at, at that same kind of weight class. They made it kind of a catch weight with, with a heavier weight class one year. Um, but I managed to finish top 10 in the world in one year. And, um, and then like once, once I was sort of pushed out of academics and not in that environment anymore, I'm moving to New York there was way too much, like my life was becoming unmanageable and chaotic and stressful and, and there wasn't enough time to devote to it. And like, I just wanted to eat some damn food. And it, so I ended up kind of just, it just naturally sort of moved away. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, I, I've competed in so many sports for so many years and uh, it was, I was okay with, with, with that and, and kind of really focusing on the career elements at that point in time. But but those are those are some of the the big background pieces for academics and and education and you know just I, you know I really feel like from from learning like I, I do love learning and and the majority of like I, I definitely have been proud of every stage of the development 
but the majority of what I've learned was after the PhD, really. Like I just, you know, teaching courses was a tremendous amount of learning to put that material together and build exams and all that kind of stuff. And then working in the private sector, I, I just took it upon myself to want to be someone that presented and presented on various topics. And I would just build these presentations from scratch. You know, I, I did a, a, the presentation I worked harder on than anything was, was actually uh, at, at Mike Ranfone's place, Bill Hartman, myself and Doug Kachidian did um, a two day seminar called The Reckoning. And I, my topic was just on the brain and how the brain works. And I've never, uh, up until this book, that was the, the pres that, that presentation was the thing I worked harder on than anything else I've ever done in my life. But I've done various ones, you know, like with Ben House over here, I'm, I'm sure you guys heard his name and familiar with him to some degree. Like, you know, I did a presentation with him that was just on genetics. And, and you know, I had to self-teach myself genetics as a topic to try to teach other people. And so I like doing that. Like, it's almost like a, I want to take a challenge upon myself. Like, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm going to try to teach myself neuroscience so that I can present a neuroscience lecture to people and I'm not a geneticist but I'll do my best to teach myself genetics so I can teach a genetics lecture and I'm not a biomechanist but I'm going to teach myself biomechanics to the greatest degree I possibly can so that I can and I would say biomechanics is probably my favorite of all uh, educational passion pursuits and, and probably the one that I'll continue on trajectory wise but it's, it's more that I like the process of learning and constructing models and then trying to deliver the central, most important tenets of that model to other people so that one model can become part of a greater model and still yet a greater model until you have just like a model of models. Yeah, awesome, man. That's, uh, it's really cool to hear you uh, go through your life story and it, it kind of like one, one thing that uh, Will Crozier trains trains out of my gym and I coached him for many years and obviously he went over there and, and saw you personally and everything and one thing he always mentions in the gym is like uh, the fact that you work really hard like in, in in the context of training or obviously in your academics as well it sounds like you were just bred to be a fucking worker <laughs> like you that that word yeah. grit right um, it's something that uh a lot of people I feel these days just don't have because it's like if you've never experienced anything that's uh, relatively hard, either in the context of physical activity or just life, it's like your your base level of difficulty is just easy. So how do you know what yeah, hard man. is? Like I don't even consider myself a hard worker compared to other people from my family. Like my my grandfather was the oldest of I five or six kids. And, you know, his father um, had, had polio. He, he contracted polio when my grandfather was about 12 years old and became handicapped. And my grandfather had to support the entire family. So he had to work as a longshoreman on the Boston docks and he still went to school and he still played sports. And then, you know, later on, he, I mean, just, he was a workhorse. This dude was you know, my idol as a kid and just like an unstoppable person. Like I can remember this old bastard digging up this giant tree stump. Uh, I don't even know why the hell he was doing, but he did it like all day. It was like, man, stop. Like you're out of your mind. Like, but no, he like chipped away at this thing with a pickaxe and a shovel for like 10 hours and wouldn't take a break. 
and finally ripped the thing out of the ground. And, um, you know, I had an aunt raise me uh, at, from like 12 years old and on. And during the time that she raised me, you know, she had uh, been a labor lawyer and had quit that because she was dissatisfied with just how she felt like there was a lot of unfairness in that practice. And she switched careers and she became a, a, a registered nurse and she worked in a hospital for a number of years until she became dissatisfied with that. And then she basically self-taught, uh, you know, everything related to eBay and she sold antiques on eBay. And, you know, I watched her build a, a very successful business. And then when she got tired of doing that, she now raises dogs and breeds puppies and that whole thing. And it's like, you know, I just watched her create these careers. And I say to myself, like, and she's still doing it. She's 70 years old. And it's like, you know, all day she wakes up, she does everything she's, she has to do. And, and it's like, you know, like I still look at what I do and I say, man, there's so many wasted moments that I, I, I demonstrate. I, I feel lazy. And it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but, but man, I feel like my grandfather would be like, what are you doing? You're sitting around watching TV, like do something. You're just wasting your, your time. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's environmental factors that drive that into you. And um, I can't imagine any other way to go about things now. I think um, that like that frame of mind that you talk about, the fact that you feel like you're lazy and you're not good enough and you're not doing enough work is pretty common across all high performers in any field. Cause I think it's the, and it sort of ties into the learning thing, right? Like never feeling satisfied, never feeling like you know enough, never feeling like you're doing enough. And even in the moments where maybe you are sitting in your ass watching TV, uh, I think having that sort of you know, bit fire or whatever you want to call it in the back of your head that's continually burning is the thing that takes people like you and, and puts them on the tra trajectory that you're on. Because I think without that, those moments of laziness, which are, you know, I don't, I don't think they're a bad thing. I think there's probably something to be said for being able to come back down the other side of that mania that, that comes with hard work and drive. Uh, but I think not having a fire there is the thing that keeps you on the couch rather than the thing that means that you have those guilty moments of pleasure sitting on your ass drinking a beer, watching sport or whatever. But uh, that doesn't mean the next day you're not back up and kicking ass again. You know, the funny thing to me is I was not like this for younger. You know what I mean? Like I really, I really wasn't. And you know, it's different than me nowadays being like, you know, I still kind of look at myself and say, I'm sort of lazy. Like, you know, there was, like teenage years and like, like that transition teenage to 20, man, I didn't do anything. You know, I was like very much like a total bum. And, you know, that's one of those things where, where when I was a professor, I could see some of these kids and same sort of a thing. Like you see this 20 year old boy and it's whatever it is, there's like some anger or there's some like, something holding them back, like just not realizing what there is. And I feel like it was, I was a situation where I was able to reach that person because it's like, I'm not going to bullshit you. I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm something special or, or different or, you know what I mean? It's just like, I'm just a, a regular person. I just happen to have done work to know stuff at this point, which I'm happy to tell you about if you want to listen, but it's, it is, it's like, you know, to me, I, I needed to just have 
somebody serve as like a example, like somebody I could relate to as an example, you know, cause a lot of people do try to like pretend like they haven't gone through shit or difficult times or something along those lines. And it's like, man, they like, don't, don't try to act that way. Like, like, like own it, own where you are, who you are, where you've been, that whole deal and be relatable. Don't try to pretend that, that the reality and the truth that led you here wasn't that. And, and if you do that, like you probably will make a difference in somebody else's life. Like people did that for me, but you know, it's, it's, it's not a situation where it's like, I, I certainly didn't have all my shit together. You know, in a lot of ways, I think that not having it together and, and being embarrassed and kind of ashamed of myself, like, you know, it's like not like to me anyways, like, you know, I can, I can remember like being like 18, 19 years old, just sitting around with a bunch of dudes, like drinking beer, smoking pot all day, getting nothing done day after day after day. And, and at a certain point you just get like so sick of it or like, what am I doing or something along those lines. And it didn't, it's not like I just snapped my fingers and went from that to like, you know, just crushing it. But, but little by little, like, um, you know, small successes and, and taking ownership of things became something that I was able to embed into my life. And it's like a process, like I'm such a big believer in just like a process oriented approach to things that just became more and more of a factor for me to where eventually like I just liked a productive process. And then once I, and, and look, I got success from it. Like I, I got tangible things. I got a degree. I got another degree. I got a job. I was able to earn some money, get a car, have a girlfriend, those sorts of things. So it's like, oh, wow. Like this actually leads to something much better that I can actually like identify and be proud of and that whole thing. And, and you can get kind of addicted to that. And, and that becomes really this driver of, of repetitive behavior and a new approach. And, um, and, and I think that that's, that to me is just like, I love seeing people get on that start, that start to it. And then watching them be able to, to create that momentum or to regain it when, when, when it's lost at certain points. But, you know, I, I, it's again, the, the actual authenticity of, the timeline of a story, I think, is critical. Awesome, man. Um, Ed, can you tell us what your uh, what your PhD was? Yeah, it's in exercise physiology, and uh, you know the dissertation that I did was on the effects of stretching antagonistic muscles on vertical jump performance. It was a uh, time where you know you got like the NFL combine and other things with you know you, you jump another trying to think in, in, in metric terms here, uh, but another few centimeters, and that can be a difference in a couple million dollars of signing bonuses and things like that. So people were trying to come up with every trick they could, and they felt like if you stretch the antagonists, that you would essentially be taking the brakes off of the propulsion system of jumping. And, uh, you know, my study was inconclusive from a result standpoint, but it was only because of some like measurement errors and methods section stuff. It was pretty damn clear that stretching the antagonist did not help vertical jump. If anything, it kind of hindered it. Mm. Um, but it was the reason I selected that study 
was because I didn't want to get bogged down in some really technical data collection thing. I wanted to pick something that would be logistically easy and I would finish my degree and move on. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to set the world on fire with, with, you know, one of the first bit of research I was going to try to do. Hmm. Um, yeah, cool. Um, Sharon, do you want to move on to your, to your question around breathing? Yeah. So, um, the, through watching uh, stuff from people like you, uh, Pat, uh, your Pat Davidson, Bill Hartman, uh, like Zach Couples, and a few other people in that realm, uh, I've been fascinated by the the respiratory mechanics discussion for a little while now. And uh, one of the things you touched on in day one of the seminar was the idea of belly breathing. That is still something that gets a lot of a lot of airtime in an industry where it probably shouldn't. And I'm certain, like I, I certainly taught it as that for, for probably years. That's how I thought about it. And it's only in the last couple of years, I, as I've learned more about the actual mechanics of the respiratory system that I understand it more now. And I'm also certain that a lot of it has played a role in the things that I'm dealing with now, you know, like a, a really tight thoracic that's all about ribs that just don't actually move at all. Uh, and those sort of things. So I wanted you to, kind of expand on that uh, or sort of unpack that idea and why it's not the right way to think about it. Cause I thought uh, the way you explained it in day one was, was really useful and it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So there's, there's this statement that a belly breath where on the inhale, the abdomen expands anteriorly is, is the definition of a diaphragmatic breath. And you know, it, it's, it's not technically wrong is kind of the funny thing, you know what I mean? But it's not an optimal inhalation either. Like, uh, you know, breathing is a path of least resistance phenomenon. And it's one that will involve the displacement of matter by the movement of other, of, of fluid and air through the system. You know, I'm going to move a rib cage by having air move into lungs and that air is going to inflate the alveoli. And if I inflate the alve alveoli, it's going to take up more space. And when it takes up space, it's gonna push matter out of the way. And in this particular case, it's gonna be ribs. And, um, you know, so that's, that's, to me, it's always like, you have to appreciate that it's, you know, air is gonna go into the easiest pathway that it can. And the other thing that's gonna move in the easiest pathway that it can is fluid. But, you know, look, Let's, let's start at the, at the basics and the, 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 like I always try to start on things that everybody can agree upon, which is that, you know, the diaphragm is a muscle of inspiration. So when the diaphragm performs its primary action, it, you're, you're going to witness a body going through the inhalation part of ventilation. So at rest, the diaphragm is going to be in a domed state. And when it performs its contraction, it's going to flatten and drop down. And that is the inspiration part of respiration. So at rest, when the diaphragm is domed up, the, the, the diaphragm is occupying more space in the superior direction. So it's occupying more thoracic space during that point in time. And when it occupies more space in the, in the thoracic cavity, the volume of the thoracic cavity is decreased and the pressure of air inside the thoracic cavity 
is going to be high. Less space equals more pressure. During the, the action of the diaphragm going into a flattened state where it loses its dome, it takes up less space in the thoracic cavity. And with volume in the thoracic cavity increasing, the pressure will decrease, which allows air to move from outside the body to inside the body, down its concentration gradient, which is just respiratory uh, physiology 101. So we'll go back. I have an inhalation take place because the diaphragm descends, which decreases the pressure in the thoracic cavity. But when the diaphragm descends, the mechanical action of the diaphragm itself is going to be one that causes the diaphragm to take up more space in the abdominal cavity. And this downward movement of the diaphragm into the abdominal cavity is going to displace the fluid in the abdominal cavity that's under the diaphragm. It's simply pushing fluid in an inferior direction in the, in the vis like those visceral abdominal cavity uh, of the body. So this fluid, when it gets pushed down by the diaphragm, it has to move somewhere and it's going to move into whatever is the path of least resistance because it's going to move downward, but it could move posteriorly. It could move laterally. It could move anteriorly. It can move wherever the easiest place is to move as water always will. And when you see someone demonstrate just a, a straightforward, pure belly breath, what that really means is that the diaphragm descended. So we're getting a diaphragmatic breath, but that the path of least resistance was so strongly in the anterior direction that that's the only place where the fluid moved. And that is not ideal. The ideal inhalation is one where the diaphragm descends, it pushes fluid, and the fluid moves in kind of a three-dimensional manner. It moves down into the pelvic girdle, which would cause the pelvis to expand to accept the, this fluid that's being moved in that direction. It should cause the, the pelvic floor to descend to accept this fluid. It should push backwards into you know, this lumbar region. It should move anteriorly, and we should witness the abdomen have a degree of distension take place. But I don't really want to see this super exaggerated belly breath. That's not the most optimal thing. It, and it's like, look, if you can choose to do this belly breath, that's fine. That shows good control to me. But if that's your only option, well, that's not great because it's only a singular direction where what we want from this greater topic of variability is the ability to have options. You know, the more options that you have, uh, the better. Like, the, like organic systems really like contingency plans and the ability to spread out and dampen stress. Uh, so that to me is kind of a big deal. Uh, and, and the other thing is like the, the sort of, you know, when I'm evaluating overall movements of an organism, you know, I, I, I examine it through the movement of the arms and the legs. You know, I'm going to table test people. I'm going to see whether or not they have uh, fairly normal human uh, humoral actions and femoral actions. But my examination of the humerus and the femur being able to move through space are much more windows into which I'm examining the degree to which the axial skeleton 
is capable of going through its stereotypical movements. And when I think about the stereotypical movements of the axial skeleton, so the innominate bone, the sacrum, the ribs, the spine, the sternum, all of these pieces, the primary driver of their movement is going to be the respiratory cycle. And so if I don't have this respiratory system, uh, if I don't have the ability for that respiratory system to create the sorts of compression states and expansion states in all of its various regions, I'm probably going to see an appendicular skeleton that's going to be limited or unchecked in terms of compensatory uh, hypermobility from the presentations that it's going to show me with its movement capabilities. And, uh, and I typically am not someone that, I, I won't address distal abnormal measurements by attacking initially the distal targets themselves. I'll begin my process by attacking the proximal axial skeleton uh, components. And, and look, this is a different thing. Like, this is not this old school statement of like, well, you need proximal stability before distal mobility. It's like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, you know, it, it really doesn't. Like those are meaningless words that are, are not particularly measurable and don't really provide a, 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 a kind of actionable framework that you can conceptualize for how you would, like, what are the action steps for how I solve this conundrum? I don't really know what the hell that means. Does stability mean that the thing shouldn't move? Does the stability mean that the thing shouldn't fall over? I don't know what that means. Uh, but when somebody says, look, like the most likely reason that someone is incapable of showing the appropriate ranges of motion of a femur, the reason for that is probably something related to the innominate and the sacrum's ability to go through the full stereotypical motions of the inhalation pattern of movements, which are for the innominate, the, it's going to be flexion, abduction, and external rotation. And for the sacrum, it's going to be counter-nutation. It does not have those capabilities, like the, the axial component does not have those capabilities. And we can drive those motions into the axial skeleton through various targeted exercises, okay? And I can remeasure and see if I actually changed my appendicular demonstrations. Now all of a sudden it's like, wow, I have a, a, an understanding of what's really happening. I have a much better uh, approach in terms of what am I going to do from an action step standpoint. And, and I have a more predictable outcome that's measurable and demonstrative. So that's, that's why I get really hung up on some of these, these terms because I, I do feel as though whenever you get into these dis discussions on, on respiration and diaphragmatic breathing, belly breathing, it's like, well, what is the ultimate outcome that we're usually talking about that people are interested in? And it's like, well, we want to make people better movers. And then when you get into this realm of talking about what is a better mover, 
now it goes into this sort of nebulous, ambiguous discussion that I feel like is like the realm of gurus. And I don't like that stuff because I feel like there's just confusing verbiage and attempts to create sort of like a, I don't know, like there's like just more like a cultish kind of a phenomenon that takes place. And it's like, I don't, I, I've never liked that sort of a thing. Uh, I feel like it's, it's just, you know, like somebody's trying to take advantage of this situation or they don't really know what they're talking about, but they're trying to create an air of confusion and mystery to hide behind. And it's like, no, I'd much rather be able to, to talk about the legitimate you know, uh, skeletal motions that have already pre-existing accepted terminal, scientific terminology for the names of the motions. And if we can classify people and, and you know, the classification of the system that, that I use that I get from Bill, which kind of comes from osteopathic literature, is that we're going to have expanded individuals and wide individuals. And we're able to identify those people through an infrasternal angle. And he's got other angles that he can use to, to talk people through, like an angle between the clavicle and the spine of the scapula. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's all of these same sorts of things that present themselves around a, a human body that's a fractal design where, you know, the, the, like the nested structure repeating model of successful shapes and organization are they provide you with a stereotypical lens to view the skeleton through that if you understand one part of it to a very high degree the same rules tend to apply across the system at you know whether we're talking about a lumbo pelvic femoral complex or some kind of a thoracoscapular humeral complex. Like it's the same rules. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time to work through the rules and to understand all of the, the normalized uh, mechanics of the system. But we can do this with diligence and demonstration and practice. And if we can understand normalization, then we can begin to have a better glimpse into what pathomechanics would be all about as well. I think that was for me, one of the most fascinating parts about your whole day one of that seminar was taking it all the way back to that idea that like movement existed before organics and <laughs> the acid trip wormhole that is molecular <laughs> geometry, uh, which, and like having heard you talk about expansion and compression and, and mechanics of the respiratory system and all of this stuff before it wasn't really for me until you made that link that I went oh fuck. Like now it all makes sense. And I see where it all comes from. And all of a sudden this, what seemed like a very esoteric concept to me at first on my exposure and like listening to Bill Hartman talk is a mind fuck in general. Um, and the idea that you, like, if you're of the universe, you have to obey by its principles. Uh, and then having you explain that whole process. Yeah. Actually blew my mind. And I I've watched it two or three times since, and it continues to blow my mind on more and more levels, which is uh, really cool. And I think, like you said, it, it provides a, an actual fundamental like uh, as close to factual as factual can be with our level of knowledge for something that is so full of gurus selling their instagram accounts through acronyms and lines on bits of paper and slow-mo video footage 
it's, it's, we're, we're, we are cursed in some ways in our industry with genetically gifted, charismatic individuals being able to really drive kind of the, the, the zeitgeist of the, of the, the psychology of the professionals, you know, and, um, it's tough, man. Like you watch somebody that's like a great mover that, you know, it's like a lot of times it's like somebody that just has a gymnastics background from the time that they were a kid. And, you know, I try to make this comparison of it's like a, it's a race car driver, you know, like yeah. the race car driver doesn't necessarily understand how the car works all that well. You know, they just know how to take the turns and when to hit the gas and when to hit the brakes. And like, they're great for other race car drivers that already, Hey, it's like my car works. Hey, you just tell me what, what, you know, how do I approach this turn and all that kind of stuff. But if your car is messed up, they don't know how to deal with it. They don't actually know how to look under the hood or run diagnostic tests or know why it's not working. They're just like, no, no, no. When you take this turn, it should work really well. And it's like, you know, I think you like the best people that I've met for really understanding the movement system are sometimes the worst movers, you know? And it's almost like there has to be a reason why you would bother digging this far. You know, it's like, there's, there's gotta be something to it. Like you're trying to solve your own personal problems in some way, shape or form, and you can't figure it out. And it should have worked, but it didn't, so why? And you just keep going, why, 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 farther and farther and farther and farther. And then eventually, and, and I just don't think anybody's figured it out better than Bill has. I have not seen anybody come even close to him. And, and you know, the great stuff I've learned has been stuff that I feel like I've tried to translate from me interpreting his message. And it's not the easiest thing to figure out, but I'm grateful it's not because it sends me off into trying to read topics like molecular geometry and spending, you know, I really enjoyed writing that part of the book. I think that the written part's a lot better because I was able to really take my time and explain it in a very, very thorough manner and use very approved scientific terminology for explaining things all the way down to this, you know, atomic level of, of assembling, a, a, you know, organic material. And, and how the same damn rules apply all the way down there as they do all the way up at the macro uh, perspective of watching the whole system moving in front of you. And it is, it's like once, once you understand the significance of it, because man, when Bill explained it to me the first time, I understand what you're saying, like how it can blow your mind. Yeah. <laughs> That, that was the one where I was like, oh, my God. I, I sat in my office at fucking 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning and did exactly that, like head in my hands, elbows on the desk, like what the fuck? <laughs> and, it, and it's happened like a couple more times since. Like I've had it playing in the background while I'm doing shit around the house and I've had to stop and like rewind it and sit there and just listen to it again and be like, God damn it. Like everything I've been doing is so dumb. What the fuck? Here we are with this like actual first principles approach to it that just 
makes so much sense, you know, like the more I listen to it, the more I hear you explain it. And the more I decipher what Bill's talking about, the more it's like, oh, fuck it. Like it all, it all makes sense now. It's all interlinked. And, and now you have like an actual framework to work from, which is the thing that I think doesn't exist very well or hasn't certainly until the point that we're at now in our industry because uh, we you know we've all come from different backgrounds in terms of sport and training and exercise and stuff like that but there's no there's no first principles approach there there sort of claims to have been but none of them are, have been i think as as rigorous and well thought out as that idea yeah and, you know for people that and, and i'm sorry thomas you, you might have a question i feel like i've interrupted you twice no 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 go go hey, just your show, man. You know, just for people that, that might be hearing this and like, what are these guys talking about exactly? You know, it, it, it is this, when you get into this, this realm of, of molecular geometry as explaining this expansion and compression concept, and if you are of the universe and you have to abide by its rules, sort of a statement, you're like, well, okay. And then it's like, wow, I, this blew my mind. And then they're like, well, these guys didn't really talk about it or explain yeah, yeah. it. Well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, what, are, what exactly are they getting at? And it's, it's this idea that, you know, biology is fractal. And fractal geometry, like if you, you know, you go to school and you learn Euclidean geometry, and that's super useful for perfect spheres and squares and cubes and cones. But it does not apply to the ability to measure organic shapes like leaves or mountains. And <clears throat> I don't know who figured out fractal geometry, but it was a major leap forward in mathematics. And apparently it's the mathematics that allowed people to make, uh, you know, the computers that landed a rocket on the moon and to be able to make modern weaponry and cell phones and the Internet. So, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a mathematician, but they exist and fractal geometry is something that they created that is capable of measuring and explaining the patterns of organic material. And, you know, the, the reason I call this stuff reaping the big patterns, it's it, like everything is pattern recognition ultimately. But, you know, we're talking about like that organics follows a patterned approach like it's stereotypical in some ways like we can <clears throat> we can predict this to a certain degree and it is through fractals but this greater term of fractals is in reference to there is typically something that is a first rule of sorts and that that rule is it's like the lord of the rings you know it's the one rule that rules all other rules all other rules abide by this first thing and if you can figure out what the first rule is, then it explains all the other ones that, that, that unfold after it. And, and typically, like, you know, by the time you get to the level of, of uh, macro human, it's a complicated web of a skeletal system, a connective tissue system, a fascial interlinking network and muscles and electricity and fluids and on and on and on and you watch it move and it seems impossible to really understand but that which governs the whole human governs the cell and that which inside the cell you know on and on and on it's nested structure it's it's a you know a, a russian egg doll with another egg doll inside an egg doll inside an egg doll and so on and so forth but if we get down to the beginning of things and and the bonds that, that are the beginnings of creating, creating atoms and molecules, 
at the most simplistic level, uh, you have two poles and you have a linear bond that connects two things. And it's going to be the closest approximation to a straight line that we can get. And you can, you can get into these arguments with really advanced people from, from chemistry and things that will tell you that there's no such thing as straight lines, but it's a, a, a bit of a semantics war at that point. But linear bonding is the first shape that takes place in the assembly of that which becomes organic mat matter, okay? And then what we have, so we have a straight line that connects two, two poles and we will build from there. And the next shape that occurs as a result of molecular bonding will be triangular bonding. So I'll take a straight line and I'll add two other straight lines to it and I'll form a triangle which is the next stable shape. And, and again, like this idea of like, if you are of the universe and you have to apply, uh, you have to abide by its rules is that, you know, the universe is pretty straightforward on this one. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And if I have two points that are the, the essence of the beginning of organic matter that I create a linear bond through, it makes sense. It's gonna be a straight line that I start with. And then I'll add other straight lines. And the interesting thing about biology is there are only straight lines in biology. There are no curved lines that make up biological shape, only straight lines. And if I put enough straight lines together, I will begin to see what appears to be curves and you know, contours and things of that nature. But you know, over here in the US, we have Disney World and they've got Epcot Center and it looks like a big sphere but in reality, it's a bunch of like straight lines that make it. And it's kind of like a golf ball, you know? It's like, hey, it looks like a sphere, but in reality, it's just a bunch of straight lines that kind of come together. And if you look closer, it's got these like squared off parts to it. If I put them up together, I can make any sort of uh, visible shape that our eyes will tell us is not straight lines, but in reality, it's all straight lines. But I, I have a linear bond that begins it, and I put three linear bonds together to make a triangular bond. And then what happens in the, as we build out biological shapes is that I'll add triangular bonds to each other. And what I'll build from that is a tetrahedron. That's the next stable shape that emerges in molecular geometry. And a tetrahedron is a pyramid. And I'll, be, I'll continue to build on from there. And the next shape that I begin to create will occur as I stick a tetrahedron bond on top of another tetrahedron bond. So a pyramid attached to another pyramid, attached to another pyramid, attached to another pyramid, attached to another pyramid. And the shape that emerges from attaching pyramids to one another is a helix. And this is something where people are like, oh yes, I'm familiar with this from a biological perspective. I understand that uh, my nucleic acids are this double helix design. Yes, and your collagen is a triple helix and your actin is a single helix and bone helix and everything else is going to, to demonstrate itself as a helix at some point. And if we create enough helixes together, we begin to create these other shapes that emerge like fascicles and compartments of muscles. And now you're starting to picture this anatomy drawing that you've probably seen in a million textbooks of the muscle belly and I pull the fasciculus out of this and I pull the fiber out of this and then I pull the actin filament out of that. And it's like, I refer to it as the hot dog with the pack of hot dogs inside the hot dog with a hot dog inside that pack with another pack of hot dogs. And it's just, they keep pulling hot dogs out of hot dog packages. 
as we go through the anatomy display of the cross section of the muscle belly leading down to the filament level. But it's, it's demonstrative of, of the essence of biological shape where it's fractal in design and that the fractal system goes all the way down to a linear bond, to a triangular bond, to a tetrahedron bond, and a tetrahedron bond leading to a helical spiral shape that emerges from that. And the tissues are constructed as we put helixes on top of other helixes and build out from there. And then the question becomes what movement occurs at the smallest level? And the smallest level of movement that we see is at the level of the helix, where the helix has the ability to be pulled apart or pushed together. And when I pull a helix apart, that is the motion that we would refer to as expansion. And the coils of the helix become more obtuse in the measurement that we would see from them. Whereas if I push the helix together, the movement of the, the, the shape of the helical angles will become more acute. So I have a compressed acute shape and I have an obtuse uh, expanded shape. And we can begin to see this manifest itself out at larger and larger levels where the rib cage, and I look at this thing and it's kind of a double helix when you really look at it with the shape of it, it's crossing at the level of the sternum and I can see this, this, this pattern of, of what really is just two helixes crossing each other uh, with an infrasternal angle. And it begins to show, like, am I working with a compressed person or an expanded person? Where if those helixes are kind of going in this sort of direction, and it's, uh, it's, it's going to be coming in this way, you know, I'm going to see this, and I'm, I might have said the thing wrong, I'm going to see a more acute angle when I'm seeing a narrow person because they're going to be, you know, much less than 90 degrees. And I'm going to see a much more obtuse angle when I'm working with this compressed person because they're going to be, you know, at a much greater degree than 90 degrees. And, and I, I actually didn't say wrong. I was still pretty good with, with my helical <laughs> discussion on that front, but because that this is the compensatory part of the system, but Look, like I'm, I'm starting to see the way in which that at the smallest level correlates to that at the largest level. And, you know, when you talk about like the movement of joints and things of that nature, like they're never going to true, there is no true sagittal plane. There is no true frontal plane. If there is a plane that exists at all, it would be a transverse plane. But the reality of it is that it's, it's the movement of helixes that we're witnessing at all times. And what we have is at the very least a stereotypical, uh, like a stereotypical series of joint actions that correspond to um, the expansion of a helix versus the compression of a helix applied at the level of a, of a human skeleton so, you know, it becomes very useful where it starts off as this, what seems to be this esoteric discussion where it's like, where's the usefulness of this if I'm a coach and I'm trying to get my athlete to be able to squat to death? And it's like, well, okay, we have that. It is in fact covered with this because if I understand that there's only two ways that the system can move, it can either expand or it can compress. I can begin to attach joint actions that we know and love and name to these two families of movement. And 
the joint actions will ride along with their other family members. When we're bringing all the family members to the same table at the same time, what you'll see is typically what you would think of as good movement. It's like, hey, when you see it and it looks great, it's like, wow, that's beautiful. And then go ahead and try to explain that to somebody. That's the hard part. Now we have kind of this ability to explain it where it's like when you see someone move in a certain way through what is a compression component of a movement, what you're probably seeing the, the skeleton do is display what we would call extension, adduction, internal rotation, pro, uh, pronation, and dorsiflexion as kind of our big joint action pieces. Those are the motions that correspond to compression. And on the flip side with expansion, we have the opposite joint actions of flexion, abduction, external rotation, supination, and plantar flexion. And we have a respiratory component that lives with the compression family, and it would be exhalation. I have a respiratory component that lives with the expansion family of joint actions, and that would be inhalation. And I have muscular actions that ride along with each family. And when I'm trying to yield and accept and absorb, that's something that rides along with this expansion family. And when I'm trying to propel something and create force, that's going to be something that rides along with this compression side of the family. And there's, as we move through space and do common human actions, there's very stereotypical ways in which we do them. And the cool thing is, is that for me, the way I kind of classify it is for every movement we make, we kind of wind up, we go through a strike zone and we, and we have to follow through at the end. Every single, you know, everything, like if, I don't care if you're walking or you're throwing a ball or you're trying to kick a ball or you're trying to dance or whatever it is. Like there's always a wind up phase, there's a mid zone and there's a follow through phase. Bench press, squat, deadlift. Some movements kind of don't feature, you know, a full follow through, but at the very least, you're probably gonna wind up and go to the midpoint. And the wind up and the follow through live in this expansion zone when you do it well. And the midpoint lives in this compression zone. And, you know, you can look at so many sporting actions. And, and I think like tennis is such a good one because of the noises that the players make. But, you know, they're trying to hit a forehand and they wind up. And when they're winding up with the racket in their hand, the hand that's holding the racket is flexed, it's abducted, it's supinated, you know, for, for a forehand. And then when they go to hit it, they're going to uh, internally rotate. They're going to pronate. They're going to extend. And they're going to exhale when they do that. <sighs> like, you know it. Like, they make so much noise now. And I'm always saying, like, how weird would it be if the tennis player went to hit the ball and, like, they inhaled in the middle of it? They just never would. There's, there's things that are fairly stereotypical. And – you know, there's clearly sporting – like a backhand is an interesting one because you're like, well, that's a totally different thing. And it's like, yeah, it can be. And that's where we see, you know, athletes develop things like tennis elbow to a greater degree because we have, like, uh, things trying to do more than they should sometimes, and it can get tricky. But let's learn the basics of this stuff first because, you know, in nature, probably no one would choose this method of, you know, fending off prey – uh, you know, most of your normal ways that you would throw, 
are going to be the corresponding actions of when you're when you're at the release point, you're probably going to be pronated, you're internally rotating, you're extending, you're adducting, you're doing all those things to launch things through space. Whereas you, to accept things in space, you have to do the, the opposite actions. And and it's the when you're able to analyze movements and figure out what zone someone is in in their setup or, or just the different phases of it, you can see where people are being limited. You can have a game plan on how to coach them. You, you have many different ways to attack the situation. Um, it's just more at your disposal to be able to create the kind of positive change that you're looking for. And it's, you know, you're just increasing the probability that you're going to get the right outcome. All right, I'm just going to take a second to translate basically the last 45 minutes into English for people <laughs> listening, like just to give you context, you know, this is primarily a powerlifting podcast. And uh, as you know, powerlifters are, are the brains trust of the fitness industry, <laughs> of course. Uh, so like uh, to, you started with the, with the breathing piece. I, I really encourage the listeners to go back and to listen to that again and take some time to pause and Google some of the terminology because those simple anatomical physiological terms uh, might not be familiar to people, but it's really easy to understand. So go back through that, listen to it, and hopefully you get out of that the fact that breathing is a complex system. It's not as simple as everyone likes to make it from a cueing perspective. And I think that's a big part of what we have uh, going wrong in, uh, you know, bearing in mind, I'm wearing my powerlifting lenses in the, in the strength sports world. It's like people just look at breathing equals breathing and bracing, breathing and bracing equals breathe into your belly and push out into a bell. And it's like, it doesn't fucking work that way. And if we just start to cue what we want to see rather than cue based on a biological happening that needs to happen or should happen, uh, then we're going to start cueing really fucking weird things and create odd outcomes because of it. From there, Pat went on to talk about, uh, you know, analyzing some movement discrepancies and the fact that if you're going to start fixing knees and elbows and wrists and feet and stuff, stuff like that, come back to the central central part, the axial skeleton, start to look at what the pelvis is doing, what the rib cage is doing, et cetera. Um, and then there was all that uh, biological stuff, which in summary basically says the universe doesn't give a fuck about what you think. Uh, movement happens, you fall into particular archetypes. There are biomechanical, biological rules. Um, but I think you put it all really, uh, really, really nicely. And hopefully people listening to this a few times uh, will, will really start to know and understand what you're saying because it does take a deep dive into that complex stuff to be able to simplify and to be able to understand. Yeah, you know, and, and look, like I, I've tried to get this stuff across specifically to powerlifting before. And it's, it's like the sport of powerlifting is, is the sport of compression. Yeah. Plain and simple, Okay. It's like, uh, you know, the bench press is the ultimate demonstration of compression for the upper body. And, uh, and, and sometimes, it, it, what I try to point out is, is that sometimes you can, like, compress, it's like you can only go to that well so many times before it runs dry. And then typically you start to have pain syndromes or something like that as, as you overtrain or you develop compensatory movements or, or whatever. But you know, the, the, the most compressed individual is the person that wins in, in powerlifting. And look, like everything about the sport, like, you know, gear compresses you harder. That's why it works. All right. Um, but I always point out what if powerlifters have figured out great ways to continue to train 
after they've hurt themselves by going in the compression well too many times. And it's the equipment that they use, okay? So like, hey, if your shoulder hurts, what do you do to train the bench press? Well, we're gonna use the Swiss bar, okay? Why would you use the Swiss bar? Because the barbell pronates your hands and internally rotates your arms more, which compresses you more. If you need to remove yourself from, from, from compression, you've, you guys have built yourself bars that do that for you. It supinates your hands and it gives you more ER. So it, it allows you to back out of that, that, that compression family of movements for a second while you continue to kind of get as close as you can, but you're just far enough away so that you're throwing yourself a bit of a life lap. All right. Why do power lifters love the band pull apart so, so much? You know, it's because you're going to supinate your hands on the thing and you're going to create supination and ER and abduction of your arms. So it's like, hey, there's like magic. There's no magic to a band pull apart. Okay. It's literally just feeding you a little bit. It's not even that great of an exercise. There's a million better exercises for you out there. If you learn, you know, it's like, don't, don't just be a guy holding a hammer with somebody else telling you, you know, go bang that nail over there. Like, I'm just saying, hey, if you understand the blueprints a little bit better, you might come up with better tools. And you might not have to be the grunt that has to do the $9 an hour job of banging the nail over there all day. You can come up with your own stuff that works a little bit better. And like, when you, when your elbow hurts because you're doing so much low bar squatting, what do you do? Well, we're going to switch over to the safety squat bar. Why is like now we're holding a handle that's going to put my arm in flexion and it's going to ER my humerus to a much greater degree and it's going to supinate my hands. What do we do if the deadlift is bothering something? Well, we'll use the trap bar. Why? Because it's going to supinate your hands. It's going to ER your arms to a greater degree. Every single tool that I can think of that power lifters go to in either the off season or when they're banged up is a tool that feeds a power lifter a little bit more expansion, okay? And all I'm saying here is if you understand the essence of what's happening a little bit better, you'll be able to guide your training more systematically in the future because you'll understand why you need that other tool at certain points in time. And you might be able to begin to time it a little bit better and periodize the plan a little bit better and I've said, this, I've said this fairly recently. I think that we have great scientists in the realms of nutrition and program design. And I think we have lousy scientists in the realm of biomechanics and movement analysis uh, in terms of understanding application and how to provide this in the framework of a periodized, intelligent program and model from that perspective. And what I would like to do would be to be somebody that can contribute to making a trinity between a periodized and intelligently quantified plan for nutrition, a periodized and intelligent quantified plan for program design, and a periodized, intelligent, quantifiable, identifiable, defined plan for biomechanics. I mean, that is my aim with this. Can we understand? Because look, like people have made great diet plans and diet apps. And it's like, you just plug your stuff in there and you're going to probably be led to the promised land by following the plan. Same thing for Excel sheets. And now can we just please, for the love of God, have something that can actually guide us towards a way in which we can move someone towards closer to optimal sports biomechanics 
but using training tools to help us get there. You know, that's, that's the piece that I want to add to this because I think it's been so, it's, it's like, look, it probably, it takes a long time to figure out food. You know what I mean? It takes a long time, but, but it's, it's, it's easier to define. It's like, well, I, I got to eat this thing. Like it's, it's clearly there. And like, I think that the movement piece is the most ambiguous cloudy area out of the three. Uh, they have similarities though, like, like food and, and movement, you know, like people will follow cults in food. They'll believe that some foods are bad. They'll, you know, all of the same things live in, in movement. You know, it's, it's like, they'll follow, you know, I'm an animal flow person. It's like, really? Like, that's a thing. Like you're, you're that kind of a person. Um, you understand it's just like a guy on the ground kind of moving around, right? Like it's, there's not any magic to that. Like you're animal flow keto person. Okay. That's who you are. Like, that's how you want to live your life. Like you're defining yourself by those terms. Like I'd much rather be someone that's like, yeah, I'm following this diet because it's the most effective logistical plan for helping me get uh, the closest thing I can to optimal from a, you know, quality nutrition component and a quantified nutrition component. And by following this approach, it's the easiest way to help me towards my goals. And I'd love the same thing to be true about developing biomechanics. And it's like, can't we just have that? Like, is that, is that really so hard? Like we, we've got all the things you could ever imagine. Like I can, I can see any movie I want on my TV by pressing a button. I can order food to my door by pressing a button. Like, you know, somebody just, you know, just, just create the framework and, and follow it. And, and that's sort of where I wanted to try to help bring it. And, and look like every, it's the same thing. Like even, even the most intelligent diet plan, somebody could be like, well, actually, you know, like the technically like, well, you know, and then that's going to happen with these things from a movement standpoint too. And it's like, I'm just, I'm appreciating that the, that the entirety of the puzzle is beyond my comprehension to understand, solve for and, and do anything with that, that could ever really be optimal. But I think I understand it on a level that's helpful. And I'm trying to create a usable framework that I think is helpful to people. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Like, you know, nutrition ain't easy. Uh, really understanding the intricacies of volume and intensity and load management, that ain't easy. Okay. And, and this stuff isn't easy either. You're going to, you know, it takes some time and some, some diligence to work through the concepts. But if you do, even if you take very little time, very little diligence, you'll still get something out of it, you know, but it'll get better and better and better the more time and diligence you put into it. And, and that to me, it's, so it's like, I don't ever want to get into something that I feel like is not a worthwhile pursuit that will continue to grow. Like I need direction on something. Like tell me that if I invest more effort, I'm going to see return on this effort. And so that's, that's what I wanted to create here is all of those things and something where I'm just like, look, like if you apply the most simple elements of this, you're probably going to see some positive changes. If you dig deeper into it, you'll get even more effective. If you keep going, you'll just continue to grow and move yourself in the right direction so that you can really become somebody that has a powerful ability to positively impact the technique 
and the tactics that somebody takes to the way that they're implementing a training maneuver. Awesome. Look, I, I think my experience of your seminar is that's exactly what you've done is provide one of the most well thought out and rigorously logical approaches, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to understanding movement from a, like a first principles approach. Like you said, uh, it's so full of cult leaders in crawling around on the ground or breaking apart tissue adhesions or all kinds of other fun things like that, that uh, having someone actually yeah, open it up to uh, a very first principles approach that has a very systematic, like this is the next step that you take in it. This is where you go and this is how you progress the the model. And this is how it applies in all different contexts is, is really cool. Cause then it gives people like Thomas and I, who are predominantly coaches of power lifters or people who are interested in the, the strength sports end of things, a framework to then apply our own context to. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people make the mistake of in the coaching realm is like, I'm a powerlifting coach. So everyone should powerlift or like I'm a, you know, I'm a conditioning coach. So everyone should be super conditioned and having the ability to take a potentially novel, uh, novel problem, you know, a new athlete who has some movement capability or lack thereof that you haven't seen before and have a, a thought process that, that allows you to open that up is, is really cool. And I think something that, if it all if it sticks around and, and is widely accepted enough, will sort of change the game for the better in the long term. So uh, maybe from there we'll uh, we'll get you to plug where people can find you, how they can buy your stuff, and then ask you a couple of these fun little questions to finish off. Yeah, I, I try to make everything a one stop shop, and and I do that through Instagram now. Like, you know, I, I've been there's a few things that are that are kind of coming out. Like I'll have a um, an online platform for this rethink into big patterns thing. Like I'm going to, I'm, I'm planning on, I don't love certifications. Like it kind of drives me crazy, but people like to get certified and things. So I'm, I'm going to turn it into a certification model. Uh, so I will have, I'm working with the inspire 360 company. They're, they're an online platform thing. Like a lot of other big uh, strength and conditioning uh, sources use them for their, for their hosting, uh, based things. So I'll have that. And, um, it's not, it, it'll be done soon. I wanted the book to be done before I implemented a bunch of other things, but what, wherever that is, I'll link it through my Instagram. Like I feel like the Instagram bio link is the easiest place for for everything to run through, uh, because it can just take you to everything that I do. So yeah, I, I, I offer a bunch of different things. I've got uh, the power hour, which is every week, I, I do a one hour education thing from, from hype gym. We, we've, we've recorded these things for over two years now. They're all available and people get that subscription. Um, we've covered every topic imaginable. I'm like, how do I keep coming up with new damn topics now? Um, but the, there's an exercise database. So for the, you know, you guys went through the PowerPoint and every exercise in the PowerPoint is, was filmed and coached and it's in an exercise database. Uh, it's also all the same things that are going to be in the book. So my initial thought with it was I'm going to write the book and like uh, Cal Dietz, when he wrote triphasic training, he's got hyperlinks to things that are in like a, a video library. I wanted to do the same thing. Like here's this book. It's going to walk you through the whole model. It'll, it'll walk you through every trainable pattern. And here's the exercises that I'd recommend in this section. And here's the order I'd recommend progressing them in. 
and every single one of them has a video that you can watch in this database that will help you to see it if you've never, you know, you're like, what is this thing? I don't know what this guy's talking about. Well, we've got pictures in the book to help you, and there's also a video that, that you can have with that. Uh, so the book will be available very soon, probably next week, which is crazy to think about. Uh, I'll link that through there. That'll be sold through Renaissance Periodization. Um, then what the hell else do I have? I, I'm going to start an online training thing in the new year. Um, you know, the, the virtual stuff through COVID has been crazy, but uh, people have asked me for, for uh, online coaching and I, I don't know, I haven't really wanted to do it, like for whatever reason. And, but I, I want to do it in the way that I'm going to, which is going to be like, I'm going to just put the program that I'm doing, I'll make that available for other people. And I'll have a, a film, the same film people that did the seminar. And I thought the seminar looked great. You know, like we, we got some really good audio stuff and some great cameras. And we're going to film every training session that I do with my training partners at the gym. So you can see like exactly how I implement this stuff day in and day out. And if you want to follow the same program, people can follow the same program wherever the hell they are in the world. Uh, and then it'll be, it'll run through zoom and people will be able to interact during the training session. And I'll have a Q and a every week to kind of, you know, if people have questions, ah, I don't have this piece of equipment. Well, what should I do instead? We'll have kind of a problem solving Q and a that'll go along with that. So I think that'll be a, a really cool thing, but, um, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, the book will be an online platform that'll, that'll be a certification based model for the seminars. Uh, we have the, uh, the power hour, the exercise database, there's going to be an online training thing. And then the other, the other really big project I'm working on is, uh, something called strength score. And it is capable of, of quantifying, uh, basically your, your, your resistance training. You know, we've got it currently set up where, uh, we can use it with Kaiser training equipment. You know, we, we uh, built computers that you can hook into the Kaiser computers and they extract the data and we send it up to the cloud and repackage it and show you the mechanical work that you do on every rep, on every set and every set put together for every training session. And you can actually see like, uh, like from a force times distance standpoint, what you actually did and be able to mathematically uh, compare your weight room performances, training session to training session. Uh, and there's some propri proprietary stuff that I'm not going to necessarily get into right now, but we're going to be able to build that same concept out for other, other utilities as well that will be available for people to really be able to mathematically analyze their, their resistance training going forward. So, so it's a number of projects that, you know, there's, there's, there's never a dull moment, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, that a number of these things become prominent features in the way that people go about their training and, and really for the better of, uh, of training for a lot of people. Yeah, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. All right, Chair, hit it. Uh, yeah, so we have four questions that we would normally ask guests. Uh, in this instance, we've got two extras that we want to add to it. Uh, and I'd like to say we're prepared enough to normally tell people these, but we're actually just not because we forget that we do them until we have a guest on. Uh, so Thomas jumped on top of me when I tried to tell you all of them. But the first one is, um, 
uh, is essentially just like your favorite lifting or, or training related memory. And uh, generally for like coaches and things like that, we like, a, like, you know, your own personal experience and then perhaps one of, of someone you've coached or, or something like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. My, my own personal favorite lifting experience was uh, it's like, I can't, I can't pick, I can't choose between the two events. They're so tight, but it was at the, uh, it was the 2014 national championships were in, and it was in Dallas, Texas here for, for strongman. And there was one event, it was a wheelbarrow carry. And, you know, I, I was in the, the 175 pound weight class and the, or the show was just not run that well. I don't know if you guys have been to strongman shows, but sometimes it's like they didn't think of the logistics of it. It was going on way too long and things were getting crazy. So we, the 175 guys were competing after the 231 pound guys. And they left, they didn't realize that they didn't change the weights for the wheelbarrows. And um, so you have, to, you have to lift the wheelbarrow and push it some distance. I don't remember how far, but it was a, it was a fairly long distance for strongman. And um, I remember I was in one of the early heats and, you know, like literally nobody had been able to carry this wheelbarrow. And it was like surprising, like it should have been like a speed event or something like that. But anyways, I, I, um, I, I carried, I picked it. It was, you know, it was just like one of those things that feels like it's going to snap your back or something. And and I, I managed to go the distance with it. And I think there were like 44 guys or something like that in the show. And, and only four people managed to carry it the distance of the thing. And, um, you know, it was, there was like a, another guy next to me, Mark Taysom, who, you know, he competed in all these events too. And, and uh, he's just a great person. I just remember sort of carrying next to him and and just like I didn't like I knew he wasn't gonna drop the damn thing and I was just like I'm not gonna drop this thing no matter what like I should be good at this event but god this really feels like it's gonna this is a crazy feeling like I I don't really know what carried that wheelbarrow through the last stretch of that thing it didn't it felt as close to like an out-of-body sort of experience as I've ever had with that and um you know it was, it was also like it's supposed to be warm in texas it was freezing cold you know we're outside and we're in like you know spandex and other things and it was like kind of wet and it was just worst case scenario and um you know it was just a a, a nutty event that was totally misloaded and and it was like it just it felt like probably the best effort I've ever put into anything I've ever done. Um, from a coaching standpoint, you know, uh, Zach Hadge is, is one of my favorite athletes I've ever worked with. Him and his brother, Nick Hadge, the Hadge brothers, they're elite heavyweight strongman competitors that, that are some of the most fun people you'll, you'll ever be around in your life. And it was that same show in Texas. And you know, Zach was competing, and, and at that time he was competing for uh, for the 200-pound championship, and he was dominating the show. And uh, the last event on day one for him was a frame carry, 
And something went wrong for him while he was carrying the frame and he tripped and fell. And he actually fell like throat first into the front of the frame. And he still, he got up, picked it up again and, and finished it. But, you know, he had to go to the hospital that night and it was a really gruesome looking injury. Like you could really see like the, the inter you could look at his throat and basically see it bleeding inside. And, um, you know, he spent the night there, like he, he was talking like, you know, like he could barely talk. He couldn't swallow. He couldn't drink fluids. He couldn't eat food because of how, how painful it was. He comes back the next day and it's just like, I mean, it looks like somebody hit him in the throat with a, a crowbar or something like that and can't really speak, can't really do much of anything and went on and took first place in the events <laughs> of that day and won the national championship and then like I think went back to the hospital and and that dude is just like you know you're around that guy for one second and you can literally feel the energy coming off of this guy and it was just one of the most badass things I've ever seen somebody do <laughs> and I've seen that guy do a lot of crazy shit but man I was like I'm never going to complain about anything for the rest yeah. of my life I can <laughs> just wild. do that that's wild. Uh, if you could have, uh, if you could sit down and have a meal with anybody in the world, they have to be alive. If you can talk to them about anything, who would it be? That's always such a, an interesting question. Like, because I, nobody ever really like comes to mind. And I, I saw that you said like, don't really reveal these questions. So I tried not to read through these ones. And I did see this one and I was like, man, I really don't know. And I always have these like terrible answers to these things. But I, I really, man, like, they have to be alive. It could be anyone in the world. And I'm like, you know, I always think, like, what, what group would it be from? Would it be like a, an athlete or a politician or a performer or something like that? And, um, and nobody really great ever comes to mind. And then I'm like, I don't really want to go with, like, the sappy routine of, like, someone in my family or somebody close to me. But I'm really at a loss for this one. You know, like it's, it's, I'm always curious when other people sort of like have these great answers and I'm like, oh, why didn't I, why didn't I think of that person? But, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely one where I honestly don't necessarily have somebody that really comes to mind. Um, it's like, I, 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 I'd probably pick, I'd probably pick my buddy Marcos over here uh, because we always have a great thing. We always have a great time. We always get into some, some really good topics. And I feel like, you know, uh, it sounds like super sappy, but I was never somebody that really had a lot of friends. And I honestly feel like, you know, you meet a lot of people and, you know, you can connect or whatever, but a lot of times people aren't that interested in getting to know you necessarily. They're interested in like maybe what you could provide for them or, uh, they, you make sense as fitting into some sort of a role that they identify you as, as belonging to. But I feel like with him, he's probably the best friend I've ever had. Cause I feel like it's just like, he's actually just interested in like getting to know me for me and that we just get along. And, and it's the same thing coming back where it's like just a genuine person that I really like to get to know better and tell stupid jokes with and that whole thing. So if I'm really being honest, it's probably right now, probably be just having dinner with, with him. 
That's perfect nice. answer, man. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the next one's uh, if... Or, or is there something that uh, was recently, like sort of, you know, the last couple of years is the kind of time frame we like to talk about that you held as a very strong, like draw a line in the sand belief that you have since wiped out that line and perhaps moved in the other direction? Oof, this is like training related? Um, uh, anything really. Uh, like obviously we spent a lot of time talking to people about training and stuff. So it can be that, but it can be anything else on top of that as well. Man, that's a, these are, these are good questions. And, uh, it's like, I don't, I don't know. You might have to rethink this whole, like, don't let the guest. Like, <laughs> I tried, man. Don't look at me here. This is a hundred percent Thomas. Because I, I really, you know, I try to be, uh, pretty, obje- I try to remove emotional bias from things as best I can. And, and the degree to which that occurs is, is incredible. It's so pervasive. It's like almost impossible to do that. Um, you know, I, I think that the big kick I think I've been on is just like pseudo progress where, where people think they're making progress in something, but they, they kind of, it gets masked, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, like, it's like you think you set a new uh, rep PR or something like that, but in in truth, like the, you know, maybe you cut down on range of motion just a little bit, or the motion changed somewhat, or just something actually explains the improvement that isn't necessarily you getting exactly better at the thing. So, like as a for instance, you can actually just get thicker as a human, and that could improve your bench press through no actual, like you didn't actually get stronger with your pressing muscles. You just, there's less range of motion as a result of some kind of morphological change or something along those lines. And, and that's maybe a bad example, but all day long, I see people that, that like will, and like general population clients are easier to see it with because they'll just cheat reps and they're like, Oh, I got 10. It's like, man, that was, that was like seven and a half at best. If we really, examine this a little bit closer and and honestly like with this because like the only place where you can use this stupid strength score system that i've created is currently at the gym i'm at but it i i i just i kind of affectionately call it weight room god and it just sees everything like you can't fucking cheat this thing it's like i went up in weight and i got my reps but my scores lower than it was with the lighter weight. So in reality, my reps did not move as far as I thought they did, even though I would testify in a court of law that they all moved the same distance as the previous one. But it's like, no, they definitely didn't. That thing is not wrong. It called me out on it. So I would have thought that I got better when in fact I actually got worse. And it's like, there's just so many ways in which I see that damn scoreboard. Just like, like I look up at it and I'm like, damn it, I didn't get better. Like I thought I was better, but man, I guess I cut the range of motion on those squats or something happened there. And, um, but when I, like, I just am such a big believer in the truth, like the, and the truth is a very difficult thing to unpackage. And, and that thing is the closest thing I've found to weight room truth that I, I can identify and when that number goes up, it's like demonstrative and clear. And it's like, it's very, like you can see like definitely body composition changes took place or everything across the board got better. Uh, the whole organism got stronger. 
So, you know, to me, like the degree to which I feel like I was deluding myself into thinking I was making progress when in fact it was like, there was actually another explanation that was pseudo progress or just inaccurate representation is, is the thing that I've had to change my mind on more than anything. And it has forced me from a practical application standpoint to just be like, I just don't change programs much anymore. It's like, I just do the same damn thing. And if it improves, it's like, well, now I legitimately know that I got better. And I think it's for the better uh, that the program is kind of evolving that way. Um, you know, it's like, like variation in some ways is a great way to go backwards. Uh, I, I don't know how else to even say that, but that's, that's my big kick at this moment in time in terms of, you know, something I sort of reframed or changed my mind about. Mm. Nice. Yeah, cool. Uh, top, top piece of advice for a new lifter starting out. Probably a similar kind of a vein is, uh, is develop standardization with the way that you approach your training, uh, from the, the movement perspective, you know, it's like your, your goal is to create progress, you know, and with that being said, the, the only way that you know that you're making progress is by first standardizing the operating procedure. If you have a non-standardized operating procedure, you cannot evaluate whether or not you are making progress because there's too many moving parts and there's too many variables to account for. You, it's, it's the scientific method. Like every single enterprise that I've looked at that, that demonstrates enormous improvements, like corporations, uh, you know, financial investments, anything along those lines, it usually follows an empirical approach. And an empirical approach demands that you have controls over the way that things operate so that you can evaluate um, any, like the variables that are at play. So, you know, if, if you're, I, like, I want your approach on every bench press set to be the same. I want your emotional state to be the same. I want your range of motion to be the same. I want your hand placement to be the same. I want everything as standardized as it can possibly get. And from there, once that's in play, now we can actually begin to utilize, you know, we have an idea of, of when we introduce something to the program, the effectiveness of that thing into your program. Um, you know, I, I feel like in some ways, like listening to a lot of Mike Isertel's stuff has been very helpful for moving my brain in this direction. It's like, we're, if you are not comparing apples to apples, you're not comparing anything to anything in truth. Like you have no ability to create that framework. So first and foremost, make everything very standardized in your approach. And then once you've done that, now you can begin to implement new things to actually figure out what works and what might not work. But, but do that. And, and I would say that is your way, like, first of all, get a coach and your ability to evaluate whether or not you've gotten a good coach 
is probably the degree to which that individual has standardized the operating procedure for you uh, and the way that they begin making sort of singular small changes in incremental ways at appropriate times. That's great. Uh, so they're the original four. The two uh, I'd like to add, uh, I think one, the second one you've probably almost already answered, but uh, the first one is if you could, or you had the ability to completely banish one thing from the industry that we are involved in uh, and it was never to be spoken of again, what would it be? John Sheridan. That's, that's harsh. <laughs> that's really um, harsh, man. You know, I'm, I'm almost there with the terms mobility and stability. I, I might, I might be there. Those, those might be the things. And it's like, that's, it seems like there's so many like uh, probably bigger fish to fry, like people that are dependent on pre-workouts and uh, BOSU balls and, you know, other, other things that are just like big, you know, like people probably need to follow these very basic things of like sleep more, eat like, a consistent diet and I'm like busy over here, like being like, you know what? Fuck mobility and stability. Those terms. <laughs> I, I hate those terms because I, I, you know, I'm kind of on this movement sphere and like there, there are things that I feel like you, like they're never defined in a way that's useful. Like, you know, stability. It's like, what's the definition of this? And like, you get these really weird definitions. Like I remember when Charlie Weingroff came out with control in the presence of change, and I'm like, wow, that sounds amazing. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what does that mean? And how do I do that? And I'm like, I don't know. There's no utility in that statement when I really get down to actionable steps. And then these things of, well, you know, you need proximal stability before distal mobility. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean like my spine shouldn't move? And then if my spine doesn't move, then I can move my arm. Like, I don't think that's really what it means. Maybe it means that my spine needs to demonstrate control in the presence of change while my arm demonstrates mobility. And what exactly is mobility? It's, you know, you ask this question to 100 people and you're going to get like 97 different answers. It's active range of motion. No, it's freedom of motion. No, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. And it's like, well, what is it? Because those things actually already have... Uh, valid definitions of them, such as like active range of motion is, is how far you can move a joint in, in, in degrees of motion uh, before you can't move it yourself. And then passive range of motion would be how far an external object could move it beyond that point. Okay, so active range of motion is active range of motion. And if it's already its own thing, then is it mobility? Because now I'm confused. So I looked up the word mobility and it literally just means that something can move. And it's like, oh, that's, that's really all it means. So I don't find it to have a tremendous amount of utility as a word. And, and I try to only use words and things that have utility to them. And, and I don't, like stability to me is a representation of how likely something is to fall over. That's it. Like, if something is more stable, it's less likely to fall over. If something is less stable, it's more likely to fall over. But I can't measure that with a human body. No ability to measure that whatsoever. Uh, so I don't find it useful. It's only useful from the standpoint of asking someone the question of, do you feel more stable? And then they can subjectively respond yes or no. And that's 
fine, but it's binary from a, a measurement standpoint. And so, and then mobility is, it's, it's like, can you move more? And it's again, binary where it's like, yes, then you have mobility or no. And I would say you don't have mobility, but it doesn't guide me anywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like those terms don't guide me in a direction. So, you know, I, I just created my own, people are always like, okay, well, if you have this problem with it, do you have a solution to it? And I'm like, yes, I do. The solution takes me two days to explain, but I, I do my best in these things to try to explain it to the, to the highest degree that I possibly can under extreme time constraints. Hmm. But I, I created a system that provides sensory motor competencies. And so it's specific things that as a coach, if you're looking at, you can use your eyes or you can use technology and you can measure the relationship between different segments of the body. And if the segments are in the right, you know, position relative to one another, we would say you have motor competency for these types of motions. And then from a sensory perspective, there's certain things that you should feel that would be indicative of you controlling your center of mass during movements in a really optimal way. And you either feel those things or you don't feel those things. So it's at least something that's a little bit more specific than stability or mobility because there's targets that I have of the relationship of the skull, the thorax, the pelvic floor. And then it's kind of like, do you feel your hamstrings working during this activity? Yes or no. And if you do, it gives me more specific information about where your center of mass is. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm aware that there's limitations to the way that I try to frame it, but I think that the specificity of what I'm providing with sensory motor competencies is more useful than trying to base your grading of movement on how much you believe the person is demonstrating stability or mobility, because those things are A, harder to define and B, much less specific in nature. Hmm. Yeah, great. And final question. Thank you so much for all of your time, by the way. Uh, what's the thing that you're most excited about for the industry uh, in the next five years? Wow. Um, John I sort of thought maybe you'd already answered that through the strength score thing, but, uh, but yeah, I'm open to something else as well. Well, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm definitely somebody, I try not to put, um, you know, all my eggs in one basket with that kind of cliche sort of a thing. I, I really do like different kinds of topics. I, I think that what I'm excited about is, is kind of integration of things. You know, that's, that's really where I get excited because I do think that there's so many uh, valuable areas, you know, it's like, you know, if you, if you dismiss the importance of nutrition, you're just missing out on such a big component. Like if you dismiss program design, you're missing out on such a big component. If you dismiss biomechanics, you're missing out on, on a big thing. And, and, um, and I do think that we're going to see a wave of an ability to measure this stuff that's going to be significantly better than, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it just keeps getting better uh, as intelligent people put these things together. But then I think that hopefully like an integrated form of measuring these things 
would be amazing. I could see definitely like with the strength score system where it quantifies like, hey, you did this many joules of work in your resistance training session. This would correspond to you needing this many calories, which from an optimal breakdown of carbohydrates, fat, and protein would be this many grams of, of each of those macronutrients that should correspond much more accurately to your you know, energy out uh, I, I think if we can integrate those things, now it's like we'll dial nutrition in with mechanical work from a resistance training standpoint to a much greater degree. And if there's any way to be able to build out some sort of a system that would be very legitimate in terms of analyzing center of mass and understanding where it should be during different drills to tell you whether or not you perform the drill with the highest level of competence, if you could integrate those things together, now you're really blending all of the big ingredients that would probably optimize performance and decrease the likelihood of like side effects that are unwanted, such as even aches and pains and injuries. Seems a little bit like what you're trying to do is create a fitness robot that's going to put us all out of a job. <laughs> I mean, I don't think <laughs> that could ever happen. No. You know, but... Makes that job easier. That's the cool thing. Fitness robot would be pretty cool. Maybe I'm just trying to make every individual organism into a fitness robot. You know? <laughs> well, man, thank you once more so much for your time. Uh, also, congratulations. You're by far the longest episode that we've ever had out of 100 and whatever, 5 or 10. Um, so we'll send you a gold medal in the mail at some point. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just a big bag of wind. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. That Thank you. I appreciate it. it.